invite you to open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. The title of my message this morning is Living Like You Are Immortal. Living Like You Are Immortal. The last couple of weeks we've had the privilege of uh, looking at uh, one of Jesus' uh, most popular, well-known, well-loved parables, uh, the parable of the lost son. Uh, both the younger and the older, both of them are lost. And uh, this morning now, we're going to move uh, on in our uh, study of the, of the Gospel of Luke, and we come to uh, one of the uh, least known parables, one of the most perplexing parables, as uh, Jesus seems to be condoning things that, um, that Christian people shouldn't condone. And so, uh, let's give our attention to Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read through verse 16, uh, 15, excuse me, verse 15 of uh, this chapter. Let's begin chapter 16, verse 1. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little <clears throat> is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And you have, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's ask for God's blessing. Well, Father in heaven, we need your spirit again so that we can be taught. We need to be <clears throat> taught and trained. And so I ask, Lord, that your word would speak to us, your disciples today. <clears throat> help us to hear what you're saying. Help us to believe it, receive it, uh, to love it, to be molded and made by it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 19, in, uh, excuse me, in 1722, a young man was asked to pastor a um, small church on the riverfront uh, in New York City. This, uh, this man was 
uh, from a t- small, small town in New England, and so uh, New York City was a long ways away from, from home, away from his family, away from his friends, and uh, this was a brand new experience for him uh, as he was only 18 years old. The man's name was Jonathan Edwards. You know him uh, maybe as the great theologian and a leader of a great revival, but in 1722, he was just a young kid, um, just starting his adult life. And, and as he started this new position as a, a pastor, he uh, began to just ask himself the questions, what are going to be the guiding principles of my life? As an adult, what am I going to live for? And so in the first few months of his pastorate there in New York City, he wrote uh, prayerfully 70 resolutions, 70 guiding principles uh, for his life. The first one uh, sort of sets the direction uh, for the rest. So he says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good and profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. If you're going to have guiding principles, you need to know what are you aiming for. And uh, Edwards decided that he was going to aim for the glory of God. He was raised with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that's going to be the, the primary aim. The secondary aim is that he's going to, he's going to pursue um, his own good profit and pleasure in the whole of his duration. Now that might seem uh, so, somewhat selfish, maybe even worldly. But we need to understand what uh, uh, Edwards meant by whole duration. He was not just thinking about his few short years in this world. He was thinking about his whole duration. He was thinking about eternity. In fact, eternity, he determined, was going to be the guiding reality as he thought about living his life. And so resolution number 22, and these are not in in order of significance, but just as they came to him, uh, this resolution reads as follows, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. And so he's committed himself to do everything possible to pursue as much happiness for himself in the life to come that is possible. That is uh, nearly a perfect example of what Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 16. It's an intriguing story uh, with a very, very powerful point. The first thing we just want to notice is that the scene has shifted. Jesus in chapter 15 has been talking to a mixed group. Remember, there were the immoral people of the town who were gathering around him, intrigued by what he was saying. <coughs> and then there were the moral people who were very concerned, uh, mad about what he was saying. They were very concerned that Jesus was befriending. He seemed to enjoy being with sinful people. And, and Jesus then tells these three lost parables of a lost sheep and a lost coin and lost sons. And the the parables uh, are specifically directed to try to help the Pharisees understand the nature of God. They thought they knew God. They thought that as they read their Old Testament and the laws of Moses, they thought they understood God to be a very stern God, a God who was 
uh, very serious about obedience and who would respond to people purely on the basis of what they did or did not do. And, and, and on that, they built then a system of works righteousness. And so they were very confident that they were going to be the people that were going to get the, the, the pat on the back at the end of time. They were going to be the one who would enter in and enjoy the banquet feast. But they missed in their Old Testament all the ways that the law and the prophets were pointing to Jesus. And all the ways that the law and the prophets were pointing to the character of God as being slow to anger. A God abounding in compassion and love. A God who delights to show mercy. They missed all of that. And so Jesus tells these stories to try to help them understand the passion that God has for lost people. The joy that God has in His redemptive purposes. God loves to rescue and restore lost sinners. He delights in it. Heaven erupts in a celebration when it takes place. Heaven is very serious about joy, and the joy of heaven is when, when the grace of God is magnified and manifested in the salvation of a sinner. And so Jesus tells this, these parables, and particularly the last parable. And the, remember, the, the father goes out and entreats the elder son to come in, join in the feast, share in the celebration. But they didn't get it. They didn't want it. They were offended by it. They were angry. They refused to go in. The grace of God was a scandal to them. It was offensive. It made a mockery of all that they were trying to do, all their works righteousness. It robbed them of their pride, and so they refused to go in. They refused to celebrate with the Father. They simply didn't get it. Well, now Jesus in chapter 16 is talking to his disciples And Jesus is saying here in in chapter 16 that in some ways his disciples don't get it either. Their life doesn't show um, signs of spiritual enlightenment. They don't really understand what's going on, what's at stake. And so Jesus says to his disciples, the people that are gathering around him, those who are committed to following him, and he tells this story. It's a great story. There's a rich man who had a manager. It would be very common where you'd have a landowner who um, hires someone to take care of the affairs of the estate. He would uh, give him the authority to do whatever needed to be done for the business. And um, charges are brought to him, to the rich owner, that uh, the manager is he's wasting his possessions not a surprising story in a fallen world. We hear these stories all the time. And so whatever is going on, uh, somebody finds out that this manager is um, he's acting dishonestly. He's wasting the boss's possessions, squandering the boss's wealth, ripping him off. And so the rich man calls in the manager and uh, demands that he turns in the accounting books and uh, that he's fired. Well, the manager finds himself suddenly in a great dilemma. It, um, it seems as though he's guilty because he doesn't protest. He doesn't uh, try to declare that he's innocent. Um, but he's, he doesn't seem like he figured on getting caught either because now suddenly he finds himself in this, in this great predic- predicament, a very serious predicament. What am I going to do? 
I don't, I'm not strong enough to dig. He looks at the options out there on the job market, and, um, well, for, for dishonest managers, there's just not a great demand. So digging, doing manual labor seems to be really the only thing that he can do. Well, he says, I'm not, I'm not made for that. I don't want to do that. And what's the, what are the other options? Well, the other option is go and beg. Well, he's too proud to beg. So what's he going to do? If you've ever had the experience of being fired or suddenly uh, unexpectedly laid off, you realize um, the pressure that he feels. Bills still need to be paid, right? Groceries have to be purchased. Life goes on. And this man's future stretches ahead of him, and he doesn't know how he's going to provide for it. And, and, and suddenly it dawns on him, <clears throat> comes up with this plan. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So what does he do? He summons all the master's debtors and lines them up. And one by one, he says to them, how much, how much do you owe the master? And the first guy said, well, I owe 100 measures of oil. That's about 875 gallons. It's a lot of debt, a lot of oil. Um, some suggest that might be an entire year's harvest for the common uh, farmer. So the manager says, tell you what, sit down, take your bill, uh, scratch out 100, and just write 50. And that'll be the, uh, the official amount. And then the next guy, how much do you owe? And the guy says, 100 measures of wheat. Well, take your bill and write 80. And, uh, and so he went on through all the, the, the master's debtors. Now, do you, do you see what's happened? This, this guy has managed in, in the space of maybe an hour or two to completely reverse his fortune. Because he's suddenly made himself a lot of friends. There's a whole bunch of people now in the community, all of them uh, landowners themselves, men of some means, and they are now suddenly, um, they've benefited from his actions, and so they're, they are obligated and, and motivated to show kindness to him. Remember, this is an honor society. They don't just say thank you very much and walk out. They understand that there's a debt that they owe this this uh, generosity. They, they have to respond in, in generous, uh, generous ways themselves. Uh, some have even said that this puts the rich businessman, the, the, the owner, puts him in a tough spot. Because um, those who were the debtors, they had no idea apparently what was going on. They had no knowledge of the, of the true motives of this dishonest manager. They wouldn't weren't told that he was about to be fired, and so they would have assumed that he's acting on behalf of the boss. And so you can, every one of them's walking out of there saying, man, that, you know, this rich, this rich guy, what a, what a great guy. And they would, the stories would spread about how generous and, and gracious this rich man had been. Well, that puts the guy in a tough spot because how does he now uh, fire his dishonest manager? How's that going to look in the community? You're either going to look cheap uh, because you're firing him for showing generosity, or you're going to look like a laughingstock when people find out what actually happened. So it's possible the man has provided for his own future employment as well. And that's why when verse 8, the, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend him for his honesty. There's no honesty anywhere in the story. But he does commend him for his shrewdness. Sometimes you have to admire ingenuity, uh, ingenuity even when it costs you. Sometimes you, you ever have the little kid who's doing something they know is wrong, but they're just, 
the way they figured out how to get at it, you just got to shake your head, and, and that, that's a thinking kid. He's going to go places. It reminds me of a story, I think I've told it to you before, of the uh, people who came out of their house one morning to find that their uh, car had been stolen. A few days later, the car shows up again, and there's a note inside that says, um, thank you for the use of your vehicle. We're sorry for any inconvenience. Um, just as a token of our appreciation, uh, here are two tickets for you. And there in the envelope were two tickets to the symphony coming up next Friday night. And so the couple decided um, to take the... Uh, the thieves up on their generosity, and they went to the, the symphony, and they came home and found that while they were gone, the men had broken in and robbed their house. <laughs> a true story. Now, sometimes you've got to shake your head and say, man, those guys were thinking. You know, you got to... <clears throat> you see, the dishonest manager is a scoundrel. That's evident in the story. But he's a sharp scoundrel. He's a thinking scoundrel. He's putting the pieces together and figuring out where to go from here. And that's what Jesus points to in the parable. That's where he makes his application. For the sons of this world, he says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now just think of Jesus standing in this world in the full knowledge of the glory of heaven. Jesus knows what heaven is like. And he knows the passing nature of this world. And, and so here he's standing in a world full of men made in the image of God, living their few short years before eternity. And it strikes him that the, the people of this world, the men of this age, this age, who don't know God, that they're more shrewd, more thoughtful, more intentional in pursuing uh, their passing security in this world than believers are, the sons of light are, in pursuing their, their eternal security in the kingdom of God. Sinclair Ferguson, I think, captures it. He says, worldly people employ what they possess in the light of what they think is their destiny. Christian people often fail to do so. So you see, the world looks... At life as they understand it. Um, and they've thought about their destiny. They realize that they're going to get a few years and then they're going to die. They, they realize that. And that's the end in their mind. So they've constructed a philosophy of living that takes that destiny into account. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They've put the pieces together. And that's exactly what you see going on in our culture. Make as much as you can, spend as much as you can, enjoy the pleasures of this world as much as you can, use your resources, your time, your gifts, your intellect, your money, use everything you have at your disposal to make yourself as happy as you can be in the few years that you have. Because you don't know when it's going to end, but you are certain it's going to. So just, right, uh, live for the now. Given the world's understanding of their destiny, the way they live makes perfect sense. Well, Jesus observes that the men of this world are more astute in living according to their perceived destiny than the sons of light. Sons of light seem to have a difficulty putting the pieces together. 
They don't seem to be able to have the same shrewdness in living according to their perceived destiny. How can that be? How is that possible? Well, the answer must be that they're confused about their true destiny. It must be that the sons of light, and Jesus uses that word intentionally, sons of the kingdom of light, brought out of the kingdom of darkness, the sons of the light who belong to this eternal kingdom apparently have forgotten. Isn't it true that if you look at Christians in this country, that in so many, many ways, it, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between our perceived destiny and the pagans with their perceived destiny if you just look at lifestyles. You see, it, it seems like the reality of eternal things has not broken into the horizon of our present experience. And when we think about eternity, if we think about eternity at all, eternity is what happens later. It's down the road. And we don't really need to think about it. Our focus is on the now. So if you think about the things that you thought about, the things you prayed about, the things you worried about, the things that you pursued this week, how many of them were eternal realities and how many of them were just focused on today, this week, this month? Making ends meet. That was the big deal. Now that's a real deal. But that was the that was the the big deal. And when you thought, maybe if you thought about the future, what you were thinking about is we need to get a new car. We should have a bigger house. What are we going to do for vacation this year? I do need some new spring clothes. Um, how do I prepare for more enjoyable retirement? You see, it, it's all now. Those are the things that we tend to think about. Those are the things that we tend to, to plan for and prepare for and strategize for and sacrifice even for now things. And the shocker of the story, friends, is that Jesus says, what you do with your resources in the now has eternal implications. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. And Jesus doesn't mean that money is unrighteous. I, I think it's best to see this in terms of, of sort of quotations, uh, the way that people might think of wealth. God does give money, and he gives it as a gift, and we are free to enjoy it. But, but Jesus is, is, is saying, use the stuff of this world and this life, so that when it fails, because it's going to fail, you're not going to take it with you, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. See, in other words, Jesus holds up this dishonest manager as an example. Because he's thinking about the future. And he's thinking about... Who's going to provide for me? Who's, who's going to take care of me? And so he makes friends, and, and he has places to go. He's going to be received with honor. And Jesus says, "Take." that's exactly how Christians ought to be thinking. Use your worldly wealth to gain eternal friends. Use your worldly resources to gain eternal benefits. That's what he's saying. See, we so easily naturally think about our resources, our stuff, our money, our gifts, but particularly our stuff and money. We think about what they, those things can accomplish for us in this life, in this world. But have you ever really considered what your money can do for you in eternity? Have you thought about that? You see, Jesus takes the, the common human way of thinking about money and just sort of turns it on its head, at least for Christians. 
the world thinks about how much money they can make, how much money they can spend, how much money they can save for retirement. Jesus says to his disciples, how much money are you going to send on ahead? How much have you invested in eternal annuities? Because that's being astute as a son of light. Now, we just got to be perfectly clear. Jesus is not putting heaven in the, on the auction block. He's not suggesting the blessings of heaven can be bought the way you go out and buy some new furniture. Heaven's not for sale. The only way you're going to get there and I'm going to get there is by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ freely imputed to my account and your account, all received by grace alone and through faith alone. Every blessing of heaven will be a gift of grace. There won't be a square inch of heaven or a single experience in heaven that you'll be able to point to and say, yeah, I, I paid for that. I, I, I did earn this. I mean, we, I got in here freely, but see this nice little shack here? Yeah. <clears throat> I worked hard for that. That's yeah, not going to happen. You see, every gift in heaven, every experience in heaven is grace. It's all Grace. But Jesus is teaching, and this is what we cannot miss. He is teaching there is a direct relationship between how you use the resources in this life and your experience in the life to come. J.C. Ryle said, The right use of our money in this world from right motives will be for our benefit in the world to come. It will not justify us, but it shall be an evidence of our grace which shall befriend our souls. You see, how we use the resources that we have in this world is evidences of how awake were we to the grace of God. How, how committed were we to the cause of God? So Jesus is calling his disciples, his followers, to live in this world with eternal interest in mind. Use your resources to make friends in heavenly dwellings so that you'll be received and welcomed with great joy into your eternal home. So Norval Geldheis says this, Do we use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive us? Have you ever thought about that? Will there be anybody in heaven other than grandpa and grandma? Will there be people in heaven who benefited eternally because of how you used your resources? Ray Bowles has a song, uh, it's called Thank You. It's not a, it's not a great song. It's, it's got some awful poetry, but he, he makes a good point, all right? So, just listen. I dreamed I went to heaven, and you were there with me. We walked upon the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. And he's apparently speaking of a friend of his. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. We turned and saw a young man running, smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. When I just read that, I remember Garrett Adama in probably fifth, maybe fourth grade Sunday school. Uh, Garrett spent his weeks rebuilding alternators, and his hands were always full of grease. And, um, and yet, he loved the Lord, and he somehow was able to communicate that to nine fourth-grade boys. 
that uh, Jesus really mattered. And I'll never forget that. Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. And Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. And one by one they came as far as the eye could see. Each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, but in heaven now proclaimed. And I know you're, uh, that up in heaven you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure I saw tears in your eyes as Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord and he said, my child, look around you. Great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. I think Jesus is talking about that. He's talking about real people, friends, who will welcome us. Because some way, God used our life, our gifts, to, to minister the grace of God in its various forms, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 4. Will there be people in heaven who will want to thank you because you used your resources, your home, your time, your gifts, your money, somehow to benefit them for their eternal well-being? I think that's the point that Jesus is making. And his, his words here then are, on, one, on the one hand, it's a condemnation, isn't it, of the materialistic um, lives that we live and the materialistic culture in which we live. We, we just need to uh, acknowledge, admit, that the way we think about money is, is, is so messed up. And not just money, but our resources. That, that it's, it's so often the way that we do our life is molded by the culture we live in, not by the kingdom we belong to. And so we use, we use our stuff for our personal consumption and our personal benefit and our personal enjoyment and maybe a few other folks that, we, uh, that are family. And we pride ourselves, you see, if we, if we live below our income and save a little for retirement, then you're doing well. Good stewardship has come to mean buying things on sale and getting out of debt. Now, those are good things. I love buying things on sale. Getting out of debt's a great idea. But see, pagans can do those things. And they do. So, so the question is, you see, what difference does the reality of your eternal destiny make in how you use your stuff? How you use your time, how you use your possessions. What difference does eternity make? Because you see, what this parable is, is a wonderful invitation from Christ for us to do just that. Start living with eternity more and more in view. You see, and if that doesn't happen, nothing really is going to change. So often a sermon like this, a sermon on stewardship, will, will tend to make you feel guilty for a little while, and then you'll mend your ways for a little while. You'll go home and say, boy, we've got to write a check to somebody. And... Um, and then it's back to normal. You see, Jesus isn't trying to make you temporarily guilty. Jesus is trying to make you permanently gracious, grace-filled, with, with a new perspective so that we can live life the way it was meant to be lived, the way that he lived it. If you want to understand Jesus' life, what makes him tick? Eternity makes him tick. He knows his God and his Father. He delights to do the will of his Father. He loves obeying his Father. He loves pursuing the mission of his Father. That's what he lives for. 
He hungers to bring many sons to glory. And that's the only explanation for the life that he lived and the sacrifices that he made. His life was, a, was just utter foolishness if those things are not true. If there's no eternity, if there's no God in heaven, Jesus' life makes no sense. But if there are, his life makes beautiful, beautiful sense. And it's the only life that makes sense. Now again, we're not Jesus. We're not called to give our life to save the world. But we are called to follow Jesus and we're called to, that, uh, to have the passions that he has to be engaged in the mission that he's engaged to live for things that are eternal. And so the principle of the parable is that our stewardship in this life matters for how we will experience the life to come. Jesus, in verses 10 through 12, clearly states that our stewardship of the little things, and when he says little things, he's talking about the things that are passing away, the things of this life. If, if uh, one who is faithful in very little will be faithful in much, one who's dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you true riches? What's he talking about? What are true riches? They're eternal riches. Eternal riches. If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, which is God's here on earth, who will give you that which is your own? So, how do we become these kinds of people? How do we become people who just think fundamentally differently than our culture does about our possessions and about our time and resources, the life that we're living? How do we do that? Well, if, if we're going to have a passion, you see, uh, to use our resources for the glory of God and for eternal things, we've got to get our eyes and our hearts set on eternity. We've got to see the big picture. That's what, you know, Jesus is standing here in this world, and he sees things from the perspective of eternity. Edwards, in Resolution 55, wrote this, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can, uh, as I can think I should do, if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. So how would I live if I could see the beauty, the magnificence of heaven, and the, the unspeakable torment of hell forever and ever and ever? How would I live today if I'd already seen those things? You see, it's, it's only when eternal things and the glory of what is yet to come. When that breaks into my life and your life, that alone has the power to free us from the stranglehold of earthly possessions. A great example of that is found in Hebrews chapter 10 where the writer, is, he's writing to, to people who've been deeply discouraged and he reminds them of their former days. Hebrews 10, 34, recall the former days after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. And listen to this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So imagine you go home today and you notice this strange tape around your house and there's a, an official of some sort in the front yard saying, this is no longer your house. We've, we've plundered it. We're going to give it to someone else. Can you imagine getting back in the car and, and your wife says, honey, what's up? And you go, yes, 
They plundered the place. Who would do that? Well, that's what these people seem to have done. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So it's like, okay, you can take take this, but you can't take the abiding possession. And, and, and the abiding possession makes this look like a, just a ramshackle shack. That's living with an eternal perspective. You see, it's having, how do those people, how, do the, how are they able to joyfully accept what we would find absolutely reprehensible? Well, because you have an eternal perspective. Listen to Beg this week. He's talking about a friend of his whose wife died from a brain tumor. She was a young mother, four kids. And she knew she was dying. Um, one day, she was about her activity. She stopped in a florist shop, and she noticed that a bunch of flowers had been gathered together to the front, and uh, they were clearly intended to be sent to a funeral. And so intrigued, she went over, and she looked at the cards and noticed that they were, they were um, very dark, uh, edged in black. And, um, and she, just, she said out loud, oh, this will never do. And she went to the, to the rack and started looking through the cards there, and she found one that she liked, and, and she pulled out a bunch of them, and she went to uh, the front register and, and said to the, the lady there, when people come to purchase flowers for my funeral, make sure they use these. And she walked out the door. And as the door closed behind her, the, uh, the lady at the register looked at the card, and you know what it said? Welcome to your new home. That's living with eternal perspective. The things that God gives us in this life are good things and we are free to enjoy them. But that's, that's, that's not the whole story. We are also free to use them for the glory of God and for the eternal benefit of our soul. Friends, eternity looms before you and before me. And we need to start asking the question, what will my life look like 10,000 years from now? You see, we ask, what's it going to look like next year? What will it look like when I retire? What's it going to look like 10,000 years from now? Just think about that for a while. And then ask yourself, what in my current life, what in, in this world and in my life will matter 10,000 years from now? My car? No. My vacations? No. My career? No. My looks? No. My reputation? No. How much of what you obsess about now and pour your energy into now and get all anxious about now and are investing all your resources towards, how much of that will matter at all in 10,000 years? And then for the next hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years beyond that, which is your destiny, That's your destiny. And Jesus, you see, is calling us right now to live according to what will matter then. That's what he's doing. Because, you see, we stand in some sense in the position of the dishonest manager. The day of accounting is drawing near. And there's a future that stretches out beyond that day of accounting. And Jesus says to us, how can you now use your resources in order to make eternal friends? How? What would it look like for you to be astute as a son of light? To be shrewd and use your stuff, your possessions to glorify God and bless others.
Reichen just gives us just a few things. I'll wrap up with this. He says when you're thinking about buying things, maybe these would be some good questions to ask. Does this purchase fit with my ultimate spiritual priorities? Does it take adequate account of the world's great need for the gospel? Is it the best use of my money and time and resources in light of eternity? Is this how I would want to spend my time and my money if Jesus were right beside me, which he is? Is this an expense that will seem like a good investment 10,000 years from now? Those are really convicting questions. Those are really convicting questions, but I think there's exactly the kinds of questions that we need to start asking. Not as this heavy weight. It's not like if you feel like all the joy just got sucked out of your life, all the air just got sucked out of your balloon, well, what was that balloon about? What was that life about? Jesus, friends, died to free us to live forever. If we are saved for this life alone, we are what? Of all men, most miserable. He died to give you an eternity. And by his death and his resurrection, you have been made a son and a daughter of everlasting life so that our life isn't found in our possessions. It's just not there. Our hope for happiness is not found in this world. We have a better and an abiding possession. And Jesus says to you, if you're a disciple of Christ, he says, let's live like it. Let's live like it. Let's live like eternity is real. Let's live like Jesus is precious and, and his cause is our greatest passion. May God give us the grace. Amen. God in heaven, this is a word that we need to hear and it's uncomfortable. It confronts us. But Lord God, I thank you that Jesus intends it to be an invitation to life that's truly life. An invitation to eternal joy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, take this, this beautiful little parable and teach us to be shrewd as sons and daughters of light. God, I, I pray you'd forgive us for how easily and fully we are conformed to our culture. And I pray that we would be more and more molded according to the realities of a kingdom that will not be shaken, that will never fade away, and that we would, Lord, have hearts that really, truly are longing for the glory that will be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. May Jesus truly be our life and his mission in the world be our mission. We pray it in his name. Amen.